Good morning. morning. So great to be here in snowy Dayton. (laughs) I think you've got more snow than we have up in Cleveland. Um, One other thing that she could mention about having a profound influence on your life, I noticed everybody except the Alateen has grayed over the years, too, (laughs) including yours truly. Um, I'm here to share my experience and my strength and my hope. And that's all we bring to this program is who we are. And if we are willing, we get a new perspective on life and living and love and God. So I'm going to start with some of my little early years. I am uh, the child of an alcoholic, which used to be a kind of a dirty word when we started talking about it years ago. Uh, I only say that because as I speak, you will find that how I grew up had a profound influence on my life and my values. And uh, my father was a construction worker and a very heavy drinker, a fantastic man when he did not drink, but Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, when he did. And this is the type of home I grew up in, and I'm the eldest of three, and I have a younger sister and a younger brother. I say that because now I found myself to be, quote, married to an alcoholic, in love with an alcoholic. So that made me the wife, the spouse of an alcoholic. As time has marched on, I am the mother of alcoholics. And lo and behold, I'm the grandmother of alcoholics. (laughs) So you can see, quote, the progression and the family disease and how it affected our lives. And, of course, my great, my grandfather, all the way back, were drinkers also. So it's been a progression through the whole family history. I will touch briefly on, uh, on growing up because I remember probably being six years old and dumping a whole bottle of Canadian Club down the sink on a Christmas Eve to try to stop my daddy from doing what he did, which was make a scene and destroy our holidays. Um, We were never deprived of anything materially because then my father would be so filled with guilt and remorse that he would buy us anything he could possibly buy us, even going out and going into debt, quote, to prove how much he loved us. And uh, that was my pattern. As I got older in the family, uh, I will just simply say that I was a wild child. And uh, my rebellion, as I, as I look back now, was, you know, when you feel like nothing and worthless, you act like nothing and worthless. And when you go into school and somebody said, well, you had the whole weekend to get your homework done, and your defiance, you didn't answer, but you're thinking, oh, yeah, well, you should live in my house on a weekend. Watch your mother get slammed around. Watch your father break furniture, the screaming, the yelling, and then come back to school on a Monday morning and act like life is normal and isn't this great. Um, My pattern had always been, uh, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. And what better way to hurt your parents than to pull some attics that would absolutely embarrass them and humiliate them, and giving no thought to your own self-respect either. And that's what I did. Um, So that covers that. I was your, quote, juvenile delinquent. Lots of energy and no place to put it. And uh, that was my early, early years. I graduated from high school and went into nurses' training. And I have to tell you a little funny story because... uh, On the way down here, we stopped in Columbus and visited two of our grandsons. And one of my grandsons is very busy qualifying for this program. And he told me that he is dating a young nursing student. And I went, oh, yes, the caregiver. She's going to save you, honey. (laughs) But it's funny how how you can see all this now and when you're living it when it was so devastating and so destroying, you, of course, couldn't see it because you were in the middle of it, like not being able to see the trees for the forest. 
But um, I went into nurse's training, and uh, here's where we get into parts when I talk about your past. Be careful. You write your own history. And uh, I said to my husband, can you imagine people are meeting people on the Internet and getting married and dating services and stuff? And he looked at me. Well, how did Grandma meet Grandpa? Grandma was hitchhiking, and he picked her up. <laughs> it's funny how time dulls the memory. But <laughs> And uh, I, I had missed a bus, and I was home for the weekend, and I was on my way into Cleveland to have a heck of a good time, which I usually did after I checked on the situation at home. Because if the situation at home wasn't good, then it was my duty to stay there and protect my mother. And uh, But uh, this particular night, I was on my way out with two of my girlfriends, and we missed a bus, and I got out in the middle of the street and flagged down this car. And screeched to the wheels, and I said, my Prince Charming appeared. And he happened to be wearing my favorite cologne, which was Juicy Fruit and Beer. <laughs> so <laughs> the maximum turn-on. So, um, of course, we gave him, we gave in our, our phone numbers, and lo and behold, he called me. Well, I had never been a domesticated Dora. And uh, I had a younger sister. I left that to I used to call her Goody Two-Shoes. And um, I invited him to dinner. Well, fortunately, my mom was an excellent cook. And uh, as Tom came down the driveway, uh, I said, quick, tie the apron on me. I want him to think I cooked this. <laughs> See, I was going to be what I thought would get him. And it didn't take me long. I met him uh, just before Thanksgiving, and on uh, December 28, 1953, we eloped. So four weeks, I mean, that's long enough, right? And I, and I really, I was going to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. I realize that now. Being the eldest, I was 18 when I married. My sister married on day after her 17th birthday, and my brother married when he was 16. We were all very anxious. And by the way, we're still all with our mates, thanks to this program. Um, we were very anxious to get away and live our lives differently and have a different perspective. And believe you me, this wasn't going to be part of our lives. Well, of course I was drawn to this guy. He was exciting and he was sexy. And I often say, somebody said, did you fall in love, Grandma? No, I fell in lust, absolute lust. And that was the basis of our relationship for a long time. Um, had one child, one boy, had another boy, had another boy. By the time I was 20 years old, I had three sons. In fact, my youngest was born on my 20th birthday. So we share a common. I wish I was, I'd take 20 years off and go back to his age sometimes. But um, in that ensuing time, this rat race had started. See, I wanted Tom to be what I wanted him to be, and I wanted this fairy tale fantasy world that I had built up in my mind of how different my life was going to be. Well, I brought my values, and my, I was going to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother the perfect companion. You know what? None of that kept him at home with me. He would disappear for days at a time. He'd disappear for weeks at a time. I would cry. I would vow never to take him back again. Then I'd turn around and believe. And I always said, I always believed that it would be different the next time. And there were promises after promises until you get to the point where you're no longer a believer. And um, I steeled my heart and my soul against lies. Don't tell me you're going to do something and don't do it. I grew up that way. I can't tell you how many times my dad promised he wouldn't drink anymore. So I had gotten very bitter. And uh, between Craig's birth and our daughter's birth three years later, we separated for a good year and a half. He went his merry way, I went mine. Thank God that my parents were there to help me with those three little boys that were all a year apart. And uh, I went to work as a waitress, and I worked in hospitals, and I did anything I could do to try to survive. 
and he'd come out to the house, and I'd refuse to see him. In fact, I had a restraining order against him. Uh, and he'd end up fighting in the yard with the police and going to jail and, you know, just all the things that when you live in small-town America, you think everybody knows. Well, clue, everybody else has got their problems, too. And um, But you, you are sure that everybody knows your disgrace and your humiliation. And then I'm sure there were people that said, well, she probably got what she deserved. And I felt I did, too. See, I finally got to the point where I thought God was punishing me for previous sins by putting Tom in my life and making me suffer. And I had no control over this because somebody else was doing it to me. It never dawned on me that I let somebody else do it to me because that wasn't my way of thinking at that time. Uh, we separated for a year and a half. Tom went on the wagon. He finally called and said he hadn't drank in a long time. And we tried to uh, claw our way back to some type of a relationship. Um, without help of any type of a program or anything. Uh, after a year back together, uh, I conceived, and we had this beautiful little girl. Looked just like her daddy used to look, with black, black hair and big blue eyes. and She was absolutely gorgeous. And she was a princess, and she was going to be the start of a new life together. And it wasn't long before she was crawling over her drunken dad laying on the floor. And all the promises and all the hurts and all the things that go with drinking were taking place again. So we decided that maybe we needed a home. And uh, we bought a little house on land contract in Yvonne Lake because we had no money. Uh, we had no credit. Uh, at this time, I think we probably owed five finance companies because you kept going out, you know. You get in this debt and uh, the constant treadmill of the alcoholism the drinking, it just the paychecks just disappeared. And then you'd go to the friendly finance company and you combine that and then you were going to pay off the ones you had, but you never got around to that. And I brought those patterns with me that I told you about, where when you hurt somebody, you make it up to them materially to show them how much you love them. I was in Al-Anon a long time before I took my responsibility for any of the financial problems that we had because we didn't have money, and I accepted a lot of expensive makeup gifts. I mean, it was bring it on. Now you have to prove to me how much you love me. And, um, of course, we found ourselves mired in debt. And then we bought this house, and we were going to remodel it and uh, start over. And, like I said, no credit, so it was land contract, which meant if you didn't make the payment, you were out in the street. Well, I don't think we were there two months and Tom was drinking again and uh, we were on the point of going to lose the house and there was, we were back to borrowing money and I was back to the shame of being married to this stupid ass. Uh, by this time uh, I could flail the flesh off your bones with my tongue. Sarcasm, a filthy mouth. Uh, I found out how to express myself using nothing but four-letter words. Um, it, was, it was terrible. And I said, I remember one night somebody brought him home. He had been drinking for maybe three or four days. And I had four kids, and I was your typical beat-down, martyred candidate for Al-Anon. I had no self-respect. I had no dignity. And these good people brought him home because... Uh, I guess he had been sick and he had stayed at their house. And I said, and I stood on the front porch with a baby in the arm and three little guys lined up alongside of me. And I said, proceeded to call her a professional um, <laughs> in that hysteria that we get into when we don't know what else to do. And uh, later on, I happened to have run into her at a, a pipefitter's picnic someplace. And I, thought, and I went up and I said, I owe you an apology uh, for my actions and my behavior. But this was after a while in Al-Anon, or I never could have done that. I would have thought I was absolutely right and justified in what I did. Um, my self-destructive behavior took forms of attempted suicides. Um, I did try to abort that last son. It didn't work, thank God. I would have missed a tremendous journey in my life. Uh, only to abort him because I couldn't see any future 
I was right back where I had started. Um, after we bought this house, Tom uh, and his brother-in-law, who he introduced to my sister, you know, you only have drinking buddies, and <laughs> they fell in love and they got married, so now my sister and I both have alcoholics in our lives. But uh, he was a little more stable than my alcoholic. I mean, I could always see the, the better in somebody else, but I couldn't see it in my husband at all. Uh, they had made a plan that they were going to go to uh, AA only to save their butts because my sister and I had a friend in the town who was a, a judge and a lawyer, and he offered, out of the sympathy of his heart, to give my sister and I double divorces for one price. <laughs> and... You're still young, you're still attractive, why keep wasting your lives, you know, dump these guys and get out of this. So, in desperation, of course, the fellas had decided they were going to go to, uh, they were going to try this program, which I had investigated, and I found, and I didn't know a thing about it, um, but it brought back a memory. There was a time in my life that my father went to meetings in Rocky River, Ohio, and he didn't drink. And my, I didn't know what it was about, but I remember taking walks holding my daddy's hand and feeling so proud, and we'd go get malted milks. It's funny. comes back. By the way, too, I was born the same year that AA was conceived, so you figure that out. I'm 68 years old. But so the journey back as well as the journey towards the future. Fellas went to their first AA meeting. Now, I never wanted it to be said that I wasn't perfect and that I hadn't been the person who held this marriage together, sacrificed, battled, and fought for this relationship. So, of course, I went to Al-Anon, and it was, well, give me my job, tell me what to do to keep him sober, and I will perform. I will be what you want me to be. And I was. I was a marvelous I could read you all the steps out of the book, and I knew everything, and I was on committees, but I didn't know anything about me and the working of my program. And uh, about three months into this sobriety with AA, uh, Tom had a chance to go out to the Dakotas to work on the missile sites in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, Sturgis, South Dakota, if any of you have ever been out that way. Beautiful, vast, desolate land, but beautiful. And, uh, you know, I had gone without a lot for a long time, and I certainly deserved better in life. And there was only one way that it was going to make me happy was to have material things. So when he brought up the idea of going out there and working 712s and making all this money, I, of course, was for it 100%. Uh, we can get on with our lives. You don't drink, you make money, and we'll be, we'll be fine because there's nothing else wrong here except you. And uh, so Tom, uh, Tom's sponsor called me, and he said, Glenda Lee, don't let him go. He's just getting his feet wet, and uh, he needs the stability of his program. And I thought, what do you know, you old fart? <laughs> you know. So I encouraged him to go. And uh, he went out there, and he sent for me about four weeks later. The kids were in school. Um, I think Tommy was probably maybe in the first grade and Chris in kindergarten at that time. And uh, he called and he said, come on out, I've got us a ranch. He said, I've got us a terrific place. Well, he didn't tell me it was 20 miles from Sturgis at the foot of the of Bear Butte Mountain, if any of you have ever been out there. It was gorgeous. It was isolated. It was a mile off the main road. And... By the time I got out there with the children, I took one look at him and I knew he was drinking. And the iron gates went down. I mean, how else do you handle hurt but to shut yourself off? Now, we talk about detachment with love in Al-Anon. I didn't know what detachment with love was. I hated you. I mean, there was no, no middle ground. And I'm out there with these four kids and I'm in this isolated farmhouse. And uh, we are battling and the gambling and the drinking and all the other stuff that goes with it. And I am really in a pickle now. I mean, I have no family around me or anything else. Uh, my, although my brother-in-law and my sister did come out. <laughs> the two of us hung together for years through all this nonsense. And uh, so here we were with all these kids, these two drunks, 
away from our parents and stuff. And um, one night, I got a phone call to come and get him. He had gotten uh, picked up, and I think he was in jail in Sturgis. And I tell people, I didn't go in out of the goodness of my heart. I didn't go in because I had learned anything in Al-Anon. I went in because now I knew I had him again. And I could tell him what a jerk he was, what an ass he was, how he'd ruined our lives, what he was doing to our family, how much I hated his guts. And um, I had a little spiritual awakening there. I do believe that we are the sum of our life experience. I took off. I left my four children alone in that farmhouse, ripped down that mile of road to the main highway, got out on the main highway to start the 20-mile drive, full of anger, full of vengeance, full of just absolute hate. And uh, there was a terrible snowstorm, and I went off the road. And uh, couldn't. as I went off the road, I went down like in a gully, and I thought, I think I remember there was a farmhouse down. I had no, no idea of how far, but I knew there was a farmhouse on the left-hand side of the road. And I got out of the car, which is probably the worst thing I could have done, and uh, the minute I lost contact with the front center of the car, I was snowblind. I stumbled down into a ravine. And I remember saying and crying out for the first time, because I was sure there wasn't a God or none of this stuff would be happening in my life. I remember crying out, dear God, my kids are alone. And nobody knows this. And I was crawling. I remember crawling and a fuel truck picked me up. I don't really remember them finding me except they picked me up in their headlights. I was crawling on the highway. And um, I begged them to take me back and they couldn't. They couldn't turn around. The storm was so bad. They said, we'll take you into Sturgis and if you can get a ride back out, uh, that's the best we can do. And they scraped the the snow off my eyes because my eyes were froze shut. And uh, I did get a ride back out. We had a friend in town that I went and asked, please take me back to the house. I let him stay in jail. But I realized that in my hate, in my anger, I had almost destroyed my children too because God knows how long they would have been in that farmhouse until somebody realized there was nobody there with them. And um, I packed my family up, realized that I was absolutely insane and came back to Ohio, put Tom out of my life shut the door, hardened my heart. He came through Cleveland on his way to New York, maybe four or five months later, and um, he knocked at the back door, and I remember saying to him, keep going, I don't even want the kids to see you. Because I didn't want the kids to love him, number one. It would have been daddy, daddy, daddy. And I couldn't stand that, because I was the good one. And um, I sent him on his way. Well, he went to New York, and that's his story, what happened to him there. But I, then I said I entered, you know, the lowest depths of my life. Uh, he called me and asked if he could come back, and I weighed this in my heart. And the only consideration that I took into, into thought at all was, well, if I give him a little bit, I'll get the paycheck. And that was what I call my prostitution phase. Um, because you're supposed to, you know, love somebody to sleep with them. And I certainly didn't love them, and the motive was strictly money and financial security. So um, Tom came back, and he wasn't back maybe a week, and there was a big scene, and uh, it was like the 4th of July, and he had me up against the wall by my throat. Of course, I, quote, <laughs> probably antagonized that a little bit. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, this time the police was called and he was dragged off to jail. And uh, that was the 4th of July. And he got out of jail on the 5th of July. And one of the people that came to see him was my brother-in-law, who at this time had about eight weeks or six weeks of sobriety. He had cleaned up his act a little bit. And they started to go to meetings. And... uh, I was asked once more to come back to Al-Anon by my sponsor, and uh, I couldn't stand her. Her life was so perfect. Her life never had any problems. Her life, her kids were groomed well. Her house was beautiful. They had lovely cars. My kids were sleeping on mattresses in a gutted-out house that we had started to remodel. I don't know if anybody's ever been through the remodeling things, 
but you know, you rip out before you can put back together. And in our circumstances, you were, we were great at ripping out, but we never had the money to put it back together. <laughs> so we were living with all these open two-by-fours and a uh, stairway to the basement because uh, Tom, had, uh, after he got into the program a little while, he decided that if we were going to stay in this house, we should um, have a basement. We should have a foundation. Ah, a foundation. Instead of cinder blocks, we crawled under and thawed out the pipes. So this man, who never really did very much at all, started to hand dig a basement under, <laughs> under this house. Shovel by shovel with a flashlight strapped on a hard hat. <laughs> Throwing the dirt out of a sun porch window. I mean, he tunneled down. He, he's got some stories to tell about that. But anyhow, see, I, I always thought, you know, he doesn't do anything. He goes to meetings and he doesn't do anything else. So I started also resenting AA. It was like, well, where do I fit into this whole equation? And... Um, as we are living in this remodeled house, I'm still going. I'm going to go to my meetings, and I'm going to make everybody think that, uh, you know, I'm hanging in there, and I'm just, I'm so critical. I'm so uh, belittling and so full of hate and revenge and just can't anybody see how, how hard it's been for me. Look what all he's getting. Good job, Tom. You know, you're sober and you're wonderful. Well, who's here patting me on the back and telling me how great I am? I've been, you know, doing all this stuff for the first nine years of our marriage and holding this whole thing together and living under deplorable circumstances and living in poverty, and nobody's telling me what a great job I'm doing. And, because uh, I wasn't. <laughs> That's what he told me. <laughs> so, so anyhow, and my sponsor would call me on the phone, and I was too damn busy doing everything taking care of everything that had to be taken care of to talk on the phone. I mean, this, this was my attitude, totally. And um, <laughs> I said, I realized one day I was coming up out of this basement stairway with an open two-by-fours. And uh, when I got to the top of the stairway, I had a basket of laundry on my right hip. And I realized that the back of my left hand was just bleeding. And you know what? I had punched every two-by-four coming up that stairway with such resentment and such anger for my lot in life. And I realized, I sat down at the kitchen table and started to cry. Why am I this way? Um, God, help me. Uh, you have to, I guess, maybe hit a bottom. And nobody can hit it for us but us. But I realized I was a pretty sick woman. Uh, I had not only contemplated suicide several times, but I had contemplated murdering my husband. And I had it planned how I would murder him. Uh, there was a railroad track in Avon Lake, and I was going to drive the car, like when he was drinking, I was going to drive the car there and set it on the railroad track, run back home, and I had spent hours. I mean, you talk about wasting time. I had spent hours in front of the mirror practicing a shocked expression. So when they told me that he was dead, you know, I could pull this off, you know. Uh, the, things, the things we put ourselves through, planning and scheming and trying to manipulate and control. Uh, in fact, just last week I was planning to kill him. So... <laughs> But I was willing at this time to take full responsibility. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, we, um, we, managed, we managed to start working on our programs. And I let him work on his. And I went to work on mine. And um, things got good. Things got good. The kids uh, were that by that time in high school. And everybody, the house was kind of back together. And life was, life was, quote, what it was supposed to be, normal and good. And then our oldest boy at 18 uh, told me what I could do with my sanctimonious Al-Anon program. 
and uh, broke my heart. Couldn't figure out his reaction. Why did why did he turn on us like he did? And his he had never had a, a drug or alcohol problem. That was not his issues. Um, but I think I probably still exercised a lot of control, and God helped that oldest child. Uh, I did the same thing to him that was done to me. You are responsible. You're the oldest, and not taking in the individuality of the person. But out of everything that happens in your life, like I said, it, it, every experience sends you somewhere else. I reevaluated my program, and I found a spirituality. I had always had a, a religion, but I did not have a spirituality. And I went on a quest and uh, found a loving God that I could really believe in and see the good in just about everything in this world. And... Um, so 10 years into my Al-Anon program, this is where I was. The younger boys were doing a little drinking. And, uh, you know, mothers have a way of figuring that out. And I still was practicing a little bit of control where they had to come in at night and kiss me before they went to bed. <laughs> till, till Tom told me he was sick and tired from barging in the bedroom. <laughs> they didn't have to kiss, sit on the bed and kiss me so I could smell their breath. So... Um, you know, kids, kids drink, kids drink. Now, by this time, too, um, they had gotten, waited till they were like 21, 22, 23 to get married, and they started to marry. And uh, Chris was the first one to get married. And um, the girl he married, I just, I knew was not right for him. I mean, I, it was just very, very evident. She didn't come up to my standards at all. And uh, I... <laughs> decided that I should help her. <laughs> and one of the first things I did was tell her that I thought her husband, my son, was an alcoholic and that uh, she should educate herself in Al-Anon because she was going to need it. And uh, that was not appreciated. I had no right to say that about her husband. And you know I didn't. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we overstep our bounds and we think we're going to be helpful. And, uh, and I was doing a lot of babysitting uh, because uh, he, they'd go out together. She never had a drinking problem. He, he very certainly did have a drinking problem. And um, their lives were going downhill. And he played games back and forth with, do you think I'm an alcoholic? What, you know, what do you think, Dad? And they'd have these discussions. And um, my only contribution to that was he came to the house one day He's a big man. He's six foot five, and he goes about 290 pounds. He's a big person. And he was standing in the doorway looking at me, and I was sitting on the couch in my living room, and he had his hand up on the door jam, and uh, he got that look in his eyes like my father had, that horrible, insane look. And I remember saying to him, Chris, you know, I love you with all my heart and soul, but don't ever come to this house drunk again. You frighten me, and I don't deserve to be frightened. And if you do come here again drinking, I will have you picked up before you're out the driveway. You know, gave me a, well, and out the door he went. I said he didn't run and join AA because his mother told him that, but I had by that time known that I could set my boundaries. I could decide what I would accept in my life, and I was not accepting being frightened of my son. So um, his sister at this time was about uh, 22, 23, and she was having some real ups and downs in her life also. Hers were emotional, uh, a strikingly beautiful woman, and, uh, but absolutely the depths of depression the terrible ups and downs and no direction and not knowing where she's going. And, uh, and I didn't try to give motherly advice because by the time you're that age, uh, they don't want your advice. And we did make a deal. Uh, you call me if you're not coming home tonight so that I don't worry about you. But I don't have to know where you're at. You don't have to tell me if you choose not to. Um, 
so we worked out a living relationship. Well, Corrine had always gone to meetings with her daddy from the time she was a little girl. And uh, one night she went to a meeting and she heard a woman talk. And she had been thinking that maybe alcohol was contributing to some of her problems. And she said, Mom, I didn't identify with her drinking pattern, but I identified with her emotional pattern. She said, boy, I was right there with her every step of the way. And I think maybe I'm an alcoholic like my dad. And AA's been good for him. I'm going to give it a try. So at 23, Corrine made her commitment to AA. And um, she had a job that she traveled she was uh, in sales, and she sold Coca-Cola promotions. She had an opportunity to travel all over. Uh, she was in Corso. She was in Antigua. She was in, oh, New Orleans, St. Louis, Memphis, uh, all over the country. And every place she went, she went to AA meetings. And then she'd come home, and, of course, she talked with her dad because he understood. You know, I was a lowly Al-Anon. Stay out of these <laughs> conversations. And... Um, she was in uh, she was in her program probably six months. In the following February, her brother made a commitment, and we were out of town. And my daughter-in-law called and she says, "Chris is going to AA." And I said, "Wonderful, you know." Uh, he had to figure it out for himself, and um, he came in the other. Oh, the first part of February, the first week in February, and sat down in the kitchen and flipped this coin to me, and it was his 20-year coin. So uh, thank God. Thank God. Uh, well, life was beautiful. The Burns family had 23 years in recovery or on our journey to recovery. Miami, Florida area, and her dad and I moved her down there, and this was the first time she had really left home. She had she had traveled, and she collected a lot of Art Deco antiques, and had her own style, and had her own program, but this job meant that she'd have to relocate, and she said, it's time for me to relocate now. Uh, she was close to 26 years old, and um, we moved her down there. We took all her stuff, and we got her set up in her beautiful apartment and uh, just felt so proud and so lucky. And uh, after we left, we went over to see my parents which, and Tom's sponsors, which lived on the West Coast. Kareem was in Coral Gables. And we left and came home. And 10 days after we moved her in, her apartment was broken into, and she was murdered. And... Uh, I will, be, I will be very honest and stand before you and tell you that there is never closure. You learn to live with what life gives you. And you can learn to let it destroy you or you can learn to let it support you and to let your God of your understanding support you. I want to tell you I had a terrible time with a God of my understanding at that time in life. Um, not withstanding the fact that the man was drug addicted and alcoholic and he was out on parole. And uh, and he was, a, he was a stranger. He was one of his strangers in the night. Well, I have a lot of strength. And I went to work as a victim's advocate because somebody was there for me when I had to go down to Florida. Tom never really did face a lot of the facts. Her younger brother, Craig, and I handled a lot. And when it came up to a plea bargain, we decided uh, Janet Reno was the prosecutor and she wanted to go for the death penalty. And she's anti-death penalty, so you know that she had circumstances to stand on. Um, Craig and I handled it, and Tom just kind of lived in a la-la land. He kept going to meetings. He didn't drink. But I was losing him. I was losing him mentally and emotionally. And at a time like that, you don't always bond together. Uh, there's so much pain that you go in different directions. Same with the alcohol pain. You go in different directions. And uh, I sought help through any means available. And uh, I even drank a lot trying to soothe the pain. And he didn't reproach me for that. Um, I finally just said, well, this is stupid, and 
put down the bottle. But um, the forgiveness issue came up. And thank God I had a sponsor that I really, truly loved who had lost a son under strange circumstances. And I remember saying to her, how do you handle the forgiveness part? How in God's name could I ever forgive the man that destroyed our daughter? And uh, she said, you know what? All you have to do is be willing to let God do it. It's not your responsibility. It's his. And I will tell you that I don't waste time thinking about this individual. Uh, life has been too full. And I got, I got the opportunity to practice my one day at a time, my one minute at a time, to an extent I have never known before. And through that, we've met so many people who have had similar circumstances. Uh, mission in life, I don't know. I probably could have killed myself, which is what I wanted to do at first, to be with her. But I guess I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to be here to carry my message of hope that you can live with some of the most devastating circumstances in life uh, if you can get through it one day at a time. Nothing is forever. So after Corrine's death, about three years later, uh, I come back into the house. I'd been shopping, and Tom was absolutely just crazy. He was throwing things out of kitchen drawers, and he was... Uh, and I'll tell you, he didn't sleep. He would be up pacing the floor all night long, all night long. And the demons of hell, he wouldn't talk to me about it, so we didn't communicate. Um, I laughingly say, and there, and there is a lot of humor in some of this stuff when you, when you step back and you look at it later, because in our part of the country, you're either in a coffee shop or you're on a golf course. And, you know, if it's summer, you're on a golf course with a bunch of AA guys. I mean, this is, what, this, this is their next addiction. So um, our son Chris happened to, I knew he had gone up to play golf with a bunch of fellas in the program. And I went up to the golf course, and I want to tell you, he was coming in from the ninth hole, saw me pull in the parking lot, come right off the green, Mom, what's wrong? And I said, Chris, your dad needs you. Something's terribly wrong. And Chris and the fellas on the golf course, now I know they paid for 18 holes. They all left. Jumped in their cars, grabbed their golf bags, and came down to the house. And uh, that's part of my husband's story, his journey back. Uh, thank God for AA. At that time, our son had five years of sobriety. And uh, he was there to, to help his dad in any way he could. And they do have a deep, deep understanding and a wonderful spiritual bond. Uh, I went on with my victim's work. And then later on, uh, my mother got very ill. And I had to take care of my mom for a few years and uh, gave me a wonderful opportunity to know my mother. Because, you know, when I was growing up, I blamed her a lot, too, for not stopping my father. And it's that evolution of understanding and of learning and being given the opportunity to be a caregiver for my mom. And, um, and I remember one day she said to me, oh, my God, where did you, of all of, of the children, where did you get the patients? because I was never a patient person. I always wanted it right now. And I said, my Al-Anon program, Mom, I can do anything one day at a time, and we're going to get through this. And my mother died with me holding her hand in my bedroom, and it was beautiful. And I think what a privilege that I was given to be the caregiver for my mom. Um, life goes on, and I'm a gardener. And I have to laugh. People think, you know, that I, quote, work so hard in my yard. Well, I want to tell you, I have taken out a lot of resentment out in my yard. You get on a shovel and you try to get some big boulder up out of that ground. And I want to tell you, you work off anything that's bothering you or chop a tree root out. And I'm always tearing my yard apart and changing it. So that's, that's part. And I found out that I have a teaching ability. Um, young people come. Uh, there's a story with the yard thing because... When Tom was uh, remodeling this house and we were struggling with our poverty issues as well as the alcohol, the recovering issues, there was a woman across the street from us that would come out in her yard and work in her gardens. And I hated her because she had nothing else to do. Look at that bitch. Spent all day outside. 
And I had washing and ironing and kids and all the resentment and everything. Well, what Al-Anon taught me also was all those hardships, all those um, years of struggle. When we're taught to look at things with an attitude of gratitude, it totally turns it around. Uh, we were so dirt poor, I told you about the remodeling. I learned how to strip furniture. I learned how to hang wallpaper. I learned how to hang drywall. We did tiling, uh, painting. I got so good at this that it's amazing. I look at it now and I think, yeah, I just wallpapered my kitchen before we left. Uh, my husband's amazed. He said to me, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I said, yeah, you just have lived with me for 49 years, but you haven't figured that out. But um, I, I look at the blessings, the blessings. If we had had money, maybe I never would have learned all this stuff. I would have had somebody else do it because I could have afforded it. So I was afforded the lessons of life to learn to develop talents and to have the confidence in myself that Al-Anon gave me as a child of God, as a worthwhile human being, as a person with personal rights, responsibilities, and self-worth because I didn't know I had that before Al-Anon. And that did not happen overnight. That was a long, long process. Um, I told you about learning to admit my responsibility in some of our financial messes. Now I handle all the finances. And boy, I want to tell you, I count for every penny. Um, as we progress in this program, we are handed so many opportunities. I told you I had the opportunity to be a, an intimate caregiver also with my grandchildren. We were so fortunate out of Kareem's death. We were blessed to have all three of our sons live around us, very close to us. And I was a hands-on grandma with six grandkids. What a blessing. There's so many grandparents who don't know their grandchildren because of the, the lifestyles we lead today with people moving away and, and, and job transfers and, and divorces. Uh, the kids all hung in, and they're all been married now 26, 27, 25 years. And uh, their example was, yeah, Mom and Dad, if you could do it, anybody could do it. <laughs> what an example, you know. Guys, we've seen everything, you know, and we're, still, and we're still here today. But the irony of part of this, too, was um, I have a, a grandson who is now 25 years old. And uh, when Josh was growing up, and you live in a small town, like I said, everybody knows about everybody else. And I got a phone call when Josh was about 16. He got busted in a car with uh, some guys with marijuana. And uh, he always did things a little bit differently. And now Chris is his dad, and Chris is, you know, our sober AA child. And uh, Chris let him take responsibility for his actions. Josh always wanted to be a police officer, and he went to college. And he finally discovered, through some very crazy episodes, a 21st birthday in the Flats area of Cleveland, which is infamous, well, he celebrated royally. I think there was an assault of a police officer, disorderly conduct, drunken. And I said, how could you do all this on your, on your birthday? Well, you know, he was celebrating his birthday. What's logical? And he ended up in jail, and I said to Chris, I, Chris was telling me, he says, he's in jail. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And he says, nothing. I said, great. So, you know, that, that let him hang himself. Let him find out for himself. Well, Josh was in town last week. He's now uh, uh, in charge of security for the Wyndham Hotels in Washington, D.C. And uh, he was in town, and he celebrated one year of sobriety. So that next generation, the joy, along with some of the heartache of watching people take the trip, is that knowing that none of this is in your hands. And that joy of recovering and knowing what lies ahead as they make their way through life. Um, it's been a wonderful experience. And I hope I keep growing. I'm certainly going to be given the opportunity. Uh, like I said last week, I, my husband was um, horsing around with some things. And uh, he told me if he ever did this again, I could shoot him. 
So I got my son, Chris, and I said, Chris, he's in the kitchen. I said, John, would you please repeat that to Chris? Uh, and I, he says, well, I told your mother she could shoot me if I ever acted up again like this. And I said to him, well, uh, <laughs> Chris says, great, Mom, I'm bringing the gun up. You can put it over the mantle. <laughs> so, we do still have one-day-at-a-time issues, but nothing is the destructiveness that it was. Nothing is the end of the world anymore that it was. And I managed to pull some goodness out of everything thanks to this program. Now, if you listen to what I've said, you've heard the 12 steps. Um, And this is my own personal story and my own way of living. Uh, I do draw boundaries. I serve my group. Uh, I always take... um, coffee in December, and I also chair the meetings in January because those are usually two lousy months in uh, northern Ohio, and I know I have to get off my butt and get to my meetings, no excuses. And uh, my home group is the Columbia Discussion Group, which absolutely has nothing to do with Columbia Road, but we moved it 15 years ago and never changed the name. But I have been a, a a learner and a participator in this program for over 40 years now. And uh, when someone says, oh, my God, you still go to those meetings? I couldn't go without those meetings because those meetings are for me and my serenity. And serenity goes along with health and well-being and your relationships with everybody. And I hope that I have carried this into my life, and uh, I am looking forward someday to being this doting great-grandmother. My mother had 34 great-grandchildren. Now, none of my ki- none of my grandkids are thinking about this. In fact, they're going the other way. They're like, I'm not ready for this. And I'm thinking, well, every generation improves with a little bit of maturity, doesn't it? They're not out of that trying to get away from life at 18 years of age. I want to thank you for listening to me. I want to thank the committee for having us uh, to dinner last night. I want to thank Andrea and Brett because um, they've got the two most darling dogs, which I love, and they've got kitty cats, which I had to leave my two at home in somebody else's care. And uh, so I'm enjoying my beautiful, talented, artistic host. Uh, Aren't we given great blessings? Thank you.